Good morning, good morning, good morning. So glad that you are here today. So glad you're watching whenever you are watching. And before I begin, I want to just bring a, a huge need to our church family. God, God has blessed us with a children's ministry director named Pepe. Perpetual is her full, official full name. We call her Pepe. And, and she's from Zimbabwe. And uh, the office went through a mountain of paperwork with the State Department to, to get her her R1 visa. And uh, it was very clear that God had, had brought her here. And then we began to uh, pray f- that God would reunite her with her husband, Zivi, who's in our service uh, this morning. And, and uh, months later, you know, we went through more paperwork and more paperwork, and, and, and God really reunited uh, the family together that had been separated for, for many, many months. And Zivi got to meet his son for the first time. There's just a lot of paperwork, a lot of details. And uh, God has blessed uh, the ministry here um, because of Pepe's leadership. On May 30th, Pepe, Zivi, and Matthew uh, flew home to Zimbabwe as Zivi's father is dealing with stage four cancer. And when it came time to come home, the consulate there allowed Zivi and Matthew to return home, but not Pepe. So as a staff, we've been praying since May 30th, or early June, after their time there. And now we bring, I'm bringing it to the family. I need an army of Grace Point people to be praying every single day for God to release Pepe back to her family and then to her church family. There, there, there seems to be uh, an opposition every time she goes in. It's almost like a power play. Like we have the power to keep you here. All the boxes have been checked from, from the U.S. side. And uh, she's been zooming in, working remotely. I even talked to her a couple weeks ago, you know, um, in, in our office. So she's been working, but her family needs her here. And so I pray that many, many will commit to every single day, pray for God to bring Pepe back to where her family is. You with me with that? You with me with that? All right. Let's take some time and pray right now. God, you called Pepe and CV and Matthew to Grace Point. God, she has done everything that she needs to do from her end, from our end, from the office end. And we ask, we call upon the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who outranks anyone at that consulate. So open the doors, bring her home. We pray this in the name and the power of that name, Jesus. And the church said, amen. Thank you. Please join us praying every day. I was a sophomore in college at Liberty University when people in my church brought me and my my sister back to San Jose because my dad in his battle with cancer was going to have pretty serious kind of experimental survey, uh, a surgery uh, at Stanford Hospital. They were in, cancer had got into his liver, and if you know anything about cancer and liver, that's just, that's a, a death nail. And so he went into this kind of a brand new type of surgery. 
and they didn't have separate rooms back then, and his bed, person in the bed next to him was a multi-millionaire who was also battling with cancer. Seven years after that surgery, God took my dad home. And between my dad and that man who was in the same room with him, my dad by far was more wealthier than the multimillionaire. And I'll tell you the end of the story at the end of my message, so don't tune out. (laughs) We're in this series called Forged by Fire. We're going to look through the leadership uh, principles and truths from 1 Timothy. Paul, the Apostle Paul had, had mentored Timothy, and, and he's writing this letter, and then he writes another letter uh, to him, encouraging him, challenging him, uh, even some things to deal with and, and how to teach and what to, to emphasize. And, and this, the power of, of God's Word is those principles are transferable, not just to a pastor and elders at a church, although we get our very clear directives from, from these epistles, but also if you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, if you're a business owner, if you have a practice, if you have influence, if you're an officer or an office manager, if you have influence, even as a teenager, these principles can be applicable to you as well. So if you have a copy of God's Word, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. That's where we're at in this series. We've got one more next week. We talked about great leaders lead with humility. We talked about every leader has requirements and expectations. The bar is up here for leaders. And when we make foolish decisions, our leadership is often removed from us. But the bar is there and it's set high for a reason. We also talked about great leaders have a clear focus. They're not easily distracted. They're, they're, They're all about the most important things. And then last week, we talked about wise leaders identify and remove toxic people who will destroy their mission. Today, we're going to talk about great leaders understand what true wealth is. True wealth is. Now, if you're new to Bible study, and our church is filled with many people who are new to Bible study, it's important to understand the context, the background of what you're reading and to understand who is the audience, and even understanding that some cultural historic context. And, and there's so many tools online that you can find Bible dictionaries, you, you can find so many resources that help us with this. So Paul, years pr- pr- previous, started the church at Ephesus. Now Timothy is the young leader, young pastor of this church. And Ephesus was a very rich city, but also had a a whole lot of poor people that also were in this city. The majority of the poor people were uh, day laborers, soldiers, and slaves, and slaves. And the gospel, the power of the gospel uh, permeated Ephesus, and here in this church were people who were rich and people who were poor, financially. And all about the gospel, it brings unity, is that the, the ground of, you know, the, of the cross is level, and, and that we're, we're one, we are united by, by Jesus Christ. So here's this church ha- having really the culture into their church. Now, when I mention slaves, you got to understand 
that you cannot take the word slaves and then filter it through the, 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 the U.S. history and the dark chapters of slavery. Slavery in the first century was not what our country was, was involved with and, and was greatly scarred by. It was different. Slaves in this first century were most, most of them were, we will refer to them today as indentured servants, indentured servants, even though they use the word slavery or slaves. And an indentured servant is, 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 is usually the head of the house, the father, who found himself in massive debt. We don't, and there's a lot of reasons why they got in debt. Maybe they got injured and the healthcare was really non-existent for, for most people. And with their injury, they couldn't perform their task and bring in the, 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 the harvest or whatever, or they got sick or a famine came and they found themselves in massive debt. They've taken out as many loans as they possibly could take out and then they were not given any more loans. So the last hope for this man and his family was for him to surrender willingly, go to a master and say, I want to be your slave. I want, you know, I want to, to come under your, your authority. And so the uh, slaves would do that. Now, in the Roman Empire, which was, I mean, the population then was much lower than it is today. But in the Roman Empire in the first century, they estimate 60 million people were slaves or indentured servants. That's a lot of people. Now, masters would take in this man and his family, would pay off his debts completely, and then would house and feed him and his family. Now, a faithful servant generally was well taken care of. I mean, they weren't wealthy, but their housing was taken care of, their meals were taken care of, uh, a, a steady uh, employment was, was take, taken care of. They, then if the, the, the faithful servant worked long enough, lived long enough, and paid off his debt, he was set free. Often they were set free. They would gain their freedom. But some people chose to, even though their debt was paid for, they chose to remain in the care and under the authority of their master. And they were allowed to stay there, maybe because it was a secure situation or now I'm older, I don't have the energy, I can't really provide for my family, so I'm going to remain a slave. They were called bond servants. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament often referred to himself as a bond servant of Jesus Christ, meaning Jesus paid my sin and the debt of my sin. And because I'm so grateful for, him, for Jesus, the rest of my life, I'm choosing to serve my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that he called himself a bond servant. So in, in this church, you had the poorest of the poor, slaves, and he also had masters, very, very rich, who owned a lot of land, businesses, and had a lot of slaves under their authority. And in the church, you had this together. So in chapter 6, verse 1, you're going to see who he's talking to, and we'll, we'll walk you through this. It says this in verse 1 of chapter 6. Paul says, all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name 
and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. So there's some teaching here, some principles here uh, to, this, to those who found themselves in slavery is one, respect your master. Now, Paul didn't say respect them if they're worthy of respect, honor them if they're worthy of honor. He just said, no, respect your master. And he said to do this because that is a good testimony, that you honoring them, when you honor your master, you're actually honoring Christ and the, and the teaching of Christ. In Colossians, Paul says a similar thing is to slaves working for their masters, you gotta understand you're not just working for them, you're actually working for the Lord. So give your very best, do your very best. There's that principle, there's that principle. And also he said, to the slaves in the church of Ephesus. Now don't disrespect your masters who are also believers. Meaning don't, don't expect them because now, hey, we're both you know, brothers and sisters in Christ that because you're a master and I'm a slave, you know, I, I expect you to, um, to lessen my load, to grant my freedom. You know, to, to, I, I, can take, I can take advantage of that. And he said, no, 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 in fact, Paul says, if you have a master who is a believer, you should serve them even better. Now indentured servants are rare today, but the principles are transferable, what we just talked about and in chapter six, they're transferable to indentured service today. We don't use that word, but it's called employees that you can't afford to pay off your mortgage by yourself, that you choose to work for someone who will help you pay off your debt. And, and you know, you, you live in an apartment, all right? And uh, you can't every month just shell out that much money and it's increasingly crazy. So you choose to go work at the shipyard to get help paying off your debts. The principle here is just because you go to with you know, the banker who owns your mortgage and you both attend the same church, you don't expect your banker to write off your mortgage because you're both believers, no. No, serve, work as unto the Lord. And in this church, there was some false teachers that we talked about last week who, uh, who were taking advantage of the situation, kind of stirring up the slaves. And that's Paul referred to, these are toxic people, false teachers. We talked about that last Sunday. Let's pick up in chapter six, verse six. Paul goes on to say, but godliness, and this is for the slaves and the masters, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Doesn't matter how much money you have. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. And that's like the, the basic needs. Verse nine. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money 
have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, men of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and endurance and gentleness. Fight the good faith, the fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your confession in the presence of many witnesses. Every church, every organization, every team has people at different levels of financial status. That is normal. But if you're a believer, that should not be a barrier of how we look at people, treat people, respect people. And every leadership situation, whether it's a church, organization, business, or team, how you treat other people that are different than you matters. How you view wealth is very important. So if you're taking notes, here's a central point. Leaders model or should model this, that true wealth is not found in money, but in godliness. True wealth is not found in money, but in godliness. Now let me explain what godliness means. A couple weeks ago I shared this with you. I'll share it again. Here's what godliness means. It's to act, talk, think, and respond the way God would want you to. And if you're godly, that is, gonna sh- that is gonna really shine like a light in darkness. That you act the way God would want you to, to act. You talk the way God would want you to talk. That even the way you think would be the way God would want you to think and respond to people the way God would want you to respond. Now in chap- chapter six, verse six, Paul is countering what was taking place, and, and these false teachers stirring up probably slaves, and he's countering verse five that says this, that these false teachers, these toxic teachers who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. You see, prosperity gospel, prosperity theology, prosperity teaching isn't a new thing. We find it here in the first early church, first century, that these teachers were thinking, hey, if you act godly, if you respond, hey, you could actually use that to your benefit and you gain financial wealth. Prosperity teaching is still there. Hey, you know, God wants you wealthy. If you follow God, God wants you wealthy. And if you're not wealthy, maybe you've got to check your faith. Now, blessings always follow obedience. But blessings aren't always financial blessings. And the blessings of God always follows obedience. But it is not a scheme. It's not a get-rich scheme. It's to trust in Jesus. So Paul combines a powerful combination of godliness plus contentment. Godliness plus being content as a believer of Jesus, which means this, it's a willing acceptance of my current status. That is a willing acceptance of my current status. Now in the Greek, that word contentment, there's a a, a, a meaning of that, which means a God sufficiency, meaning God is sufficient in your life, 
And what God is providing for you, there is a willful acceptance of the sufficiency of God in your life. This does not mean, being contentment does not mean that you need to forego goals and desires. Like if you have no job, you should just be content with that and not have a goal or a desire for a job. No, that's not true. That means if you're living in an apartment now, you should not want to live in a house. That is not, that's not what it's saying. That you could have a goal to, to finally get out of an apartment and, and throwing away money, sorry, to give lots of money to, uh, to someone who owns that versus your own house. That's okay, it's a good goal, it's a good desire. Contentment doesn't mean you throw that out. Contentment doesn't mean, hey, you're a low-ranking you know, officer, or even you're not even an officer, and, and you're like E1, and you have a desire and, and a goal to go higher and higher and, and advance your career. There's nothing wrong with that. But where God has assigned you now, there needs to be a willing acceptance. And whatever position I find myself, I'm going to do my best I can. I'm going to serve as unto the Lord. That doesn't mean that if you're making minimum wage or even below minimum wage, that you should, should not have a goal or desire to actually have a salary or a, a pay that you have also benefits. It doesn't mean that if you have a car that is always breaking down, that you should have a, a, a goal or desire. One day, I would just love to have a vehicle that when I turned it on, it actually went off. And I'm constantly not struggling. No, it's okay to have goals and dreams. So Paul is combining that acting, talking, living, responding the way God would want, combined with a willing acceptance of the status that God has placed me in. He says, that is great gain. Great, great gain. And leaders saw the leaders wise leaders are going to model that true wealth, true wealth is not found in money. And you need to have that, that, that the correct biblical concept of that, that even if you have lots of money, that that's not true wealth because you're going to give it away or it will be taken away called inflation and taxes and economy tanking. That true wealth is beyond that. True wealth is found in godliness. Now, here's what teacher, uh, Scripture teaches, is that wealth is to be a tool, not the goal. Wealth is to be a tool, not the goal. And if you have wealth as the goal, this will lead to devastating results. This will lead to devastating results. We even see this in the professional sports world where, you know, you know the athletes that come from nothing and then all of a sudden they sign and they're, now they're a multimillionaire and they have no concept of wealth. They think, I've arrived. And they kick it into neutral. In a couple of years, they're out of the league because they, I'm at the goal and that's it. And, and you think, well, if I, if, I, if I can just make a little bit more, <laughs> then, then I'll be okay. And then a little bit more, then a little bit more, and then a little bit more. Wealth is to be a tool. We'll talk about that next Sunday. It's a powerful tool. Wealth in the hands of a godly content person. God does amazing things, powerful and positive things through that. But it's a tool. It's not the goal. But if you make it a goal, it will lead to devastating results. 
If that is your goal is to be wealthy, then you're going you're gonna to be impulsive and you jump to different things. You change jobs, change careers, going after whatever will pay more. If that's your goal, then you're going to become a workaholic and you'll neglect the relationships at home. If that's your goal. If wealth is your goal, then you're just going to be all over the place and then you begin to compromise and justify your compromise of your character or compromise, hey, you know, I'm going to cut the corner over here, hey, because it's going to advance my goal of getting more money. And then pretty soon you're finding yourself with, you know, your character is being compromised and you're defrauding people. You're not telling them the whole truth because of your goal is wealth. Pastor Stephen Armstrong said this. I love this phrase. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation. I'm sorry, verse 9. Then I'll get to Stephen. All right. Verse 9 says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. So easy. And into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin or destruction and destruction. Even these slaves are thinking, you know what? Maybe if I just run away. Man, look at the house that I'm, I'm living in. Man, I want a house like this. Look at all the, all, the, all the property that they have. Look at all the wealth at their disposal. I'm going to go run away. And it'll lead to all sorts of pain. Now, had you hanging there. Pastor Stephen Armstrong said this. The desires for riches is a seductive mistress that pulls us into an embrace that's hard to escape once we, we, we become entangled. Man, if I could just make that much money, if I could just purchase that, if I could just live in this over here, very seductive, very seductive. So then comes verse 10, verse 10. It says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Here's a, a misnomer, that money is the root of all evil. No, it's the love of money. Money is just a tool. But the love of money, that passionate pursuit and desire is the root of all kinds of evil. Then he says, some people eager for more money, all right, eager for money, eager for more money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Money isn't the root of all evil. The passionate pursuit of that is my goal is to make this much money. And once you get there, I need to now make this much money. That's the danger. He says, there have been some who, because of this passion, have wandered from the faith. They were following Jesus. Now they're following the money. They were obeying Christ and following what Christ would want in their life. Now they're obeying that urge, that desire to just make more money. And they've wandered from the faith. Whenever we wander from the faith, we get out from the light of the truth and we get into the darkness and nothing good happens in the darkness, spiritually speaking. Then he says they have pierced themselves with many griefs. You know, they weren't pierced by many griefs. No, they have, they have pierced themselves. They are the root cause 
of the pain that they're living with. Because of the love of money, I just need more. Now I'm, I'm reaping the consequences and it's so piercing to my soul that I compromised my character over here and over there and over there. I used to be a man or woman of integrity, now I'm not. People used to trust me, now they don't. Pierced themselves. Because I was a workaholic, my children don't really know me, and I've communicated to them that they're not that important. My job is way more important, my career is way more important than them. That is gonna have devastating results that will cash in later in life. Because if I, could, if I could just, I'll just go up to the casino and I'll just, I'll just gamble. And because if I just, if I just, I need some more. If I, if I make, you know, if I make some more money, get some more money, I'll take care of my problems. And then that's a path that will produce pain. You're going to lose your marriage because your mistress, your lover, was not your spouse, it was more money. In Scripture, wealth is to be a tool, not a goal. In Scripture, in this passage, godliness is the goal with the most gain. Godliness is the goal with the most gain. In chapter 4, when we walked through that passage a few weeks ago, it says that this, that godliness has value for all things. In every stage of your life, it's an incredible game to be godly. In, in, in all your relationships, in all your stages of life, in all your places of employment, acting, talking, thinking, and responding to people the way God would want you to has value for every area of your life. Holding promise both for this life and the life to come. You're making constant deposits that will reap a harvest in this life because of godliness and the next life. Godliness is the goal. Godliness is the goal with incredible gain, the most gain. And then chapter 6, verse 6, he says, godliness with contentment is great gain, is great gain. So my dad was in Stanford Hospital, recovering from surgery that extended his life here on earth. And the man next to him was, said this to my dad, that I'm envious of you because you have friends and family who love you. I'm a multimillionaire. And my children want nothing to do with me. You are a wealthy man. That's what he said to my dad. When my dad died in 1990, he had a mountain of hospital debts. He was still shopping at the thrift store. Moved from Bay Area out to Medford, Oregon. When my dad died, he... he um, 
He didn't provide us children with an inheritance. Uh, my brother got the 1967 yellow El Camino that then completely died a year later. My mom had all these debts to pay. My dad had a lot of taxes that were unpaid that he was trying to reduce and negotiate. And so most of the life insurance went to pay off debt. But my dad was wealthy. We had to have two services for his funeral. Packed out in Oregon and back in San Jose. When I was going through the, getting ready to say goodbye to my mom, I, I remembered a, a very crucial summer when I was, you know, just finished fifth grade, going into sixth grade, and, and my dad went off to Alaska to earn money, and how he was a broken man and hurt. And I wrote on my blog, I wrote an article, and I just, I posted it, and then I, I shared it on a Facebook page from my home church that a lot of a lot of his former teenagers, when he was a youth pastor there, read. And my blog blew up, like 2,300 people read it. And they constantly were talking about, your dad was so godly. God used your dad to change my life. I think about your dad all the time. When I was looking through this passage, I came to verse 11. Paul says to Timothy, don't flee all that toxic truth and teaching and love of money and the pursuit of money. And he says, and pursue righteousness. The last part of verse 11 described my father. And when we get to heaven, I'll introduce you, okay? He's pretty awesome. He's amazing. But he pursued righteousness. He pursued constantly, I gotta do the right thing. That's righteousness, even when it cost him. He pursued godliness. He responded when he was hurt deeply with godliness. He pursued faith, his faith continued to grow. He pursued love, he loved people. How, it doesn't matter how broken they were. Constantly, the comments from teenagers and then young adults that he, that he they led a young marriage ministry and after he came back from Alaska and, and, and helped in different ministries and people were constantly saying, I was invisible, but your dad was one of the few people who saw me and loved me. My dad pursued endurance all the way until he entered glory. And my dad was one of the gentlest men I've ever met. And he modeled as a leader, as a father, as a youth pastor, as a business owner, and as a business owner of a, of a daycare center in Medford, Oregon, that someone from our church came to me years ago and went, I went to that daycare center. Because leaders model that true wealth, true wealth is not found in how much money you have, but how godly you are. 
And if you have a leader in your life with that, be grateful. I hope every parent says, you know what, I need to model this. Every grandparent, I need to model this. Every Christian business owner needs to model this. Because we live in a broken world that is greedy for more, and it's empty. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for Paul mentoring Timothy and writing down what you wanted him to know as a young leader, young pastor. The Holy Spirit directed his thoughts to pen words that are still applicable today. And in a culture that is craving for anything and everything but godliness, I pray that Christians would lead by modeling what real true wealth looks like. So Lord, I pray that you take your word, may it sink deep into our hearts, may we live out your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.